And I actually don't have control up here, guys, if you could manage the slides. Thank you. King David, the great king of Israel, once wrote, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I wonder how many of our truest problems in life stem from a failure to set the Lord always before us. Well, I want to set the Lord before you this morning. I want us to see Jesus in this text of Scripture. I want us to see him because he is worthy of all our attention. I want us to see him because he's worthy of all our devotion. I want us to see him because without knowing him, we cannot know ourselves truly. I want us to see him because we are all so easily shaken. Before we turn to our passage here, a couple of notes. It's a very dangerous thing to try and find Jesus apart from the Bible. There's a lot of people over the years who have set out on a quest to find Jesus somewhere else. And the problem is the Jesus they end up finding looks and sounds a lot like them. Or looks and sounds a lot like the culture in which they live. We cannot define his love any way we please. We cannot understand his authority any way we please. So we have to come to him according to what the Bible says. One other note, if you're not familiar with Christianity or haven't been in church very long, the word Christ essentially means king. There's a little more to it than that, but just for shorthand purposes, when you see the word Christ, think king. And the first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is Christ over creation. There's these two titles given to him in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that those two titles are a reference to when God created Adam, the first man. When he created Adam, he created him in the image of God, which meant he was to reflect God's character to the rest of creation. And as firstborn, Adam is called a son of God, but also he had authority over creation. He was to exercise dominion over that creation. Well, when you know that these two references are to Adam, it's tempting to think maybe that Paul is saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is part of the created order, that he's not really divine, he's not really God. But that would be wrong for a couple of reasons. First, because firstborn in the Bible most often refers to status. The firstborn was not merely the oldest sibling. The firstborn was the one who was the heir of the estate. In this case, the estate is all creation, and Jesus is the heir. 
But also, we see in verse 16 that he is heir of creation because he created everything in heaven and on earth. That means everything you see and everything you can't see is part of Jesus' creation. It means he decided what should exist. So the rocks and trees and skies and seas, Jesus decided all of those things should exist. And of course, referring specifically to verse 16, it means every form of authority is a part of his creation. That's why the Bible says that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He presides over the presidents. He has primacy over the prime ministers. Every form of human authority is merely a part of his created order. And it's not only human authority, but every spiritual authority. So angels, demons, even Satan himself is under the overall authority of the Son of God because he created all things. But not only did he create everything, everything exists for him. I appreciate it. Pastor Doug emphasized that in the reading a moment ago. Think about that for a minute. Everything exists for Jesus. That means it doesn't matter if you've had any religious background or any thoughts about Jesus before now. You and I exist for him. If you didn't know that, I'm glad you're here this morning because you need to know it and I need to know it. We don't exist for our own purposes, for our own glory, or even our own happiness. We exist for him, for his glory, his purposes, and ultimately, his happiness and ours. But the point of everything that exists is that the glory of Christ would be recognized and delighted in by his creatures. So everything exists for him. And probably the craziest thing in this whole passage is verse 17. He holds everything together. As it is, he decided everything that should exist when he created everything. Everything we know about reality, he created. And not only did he create it in the beginning, but he holds it together That means if he decided something should no longer exist, it'd be gone just like that. Today happens to be the 100th anniversary of uh, my home church in Oak Park, Michigan. I have a fond memory of one of our church picnics. We were playing this kind of cheesy church picnic-y game called Human Checkers. So we're all sitting out in lawn chairs playing this game. And I got sat next to Dr. Woolley. Dr. Woolley was this godly man. He was super old. Uh, maybe it was my 14-year-old self, but he was super old. I used to think when we were singing about the Ancient of Days, we were singing about Dr. Woolley. <laughs> but even at ancient years old, Dr. Woolley was in awe of this verse. He said to me, young man, what does it mean that in him all things consist? That's the King James translation of this verse. What does it mean that in him all things consist? 
So there. I don't know. Is it your move? <laughs> I have no idea what he's talking about. But I can say this. I don't necessarily know the mechanics of it any better now than I did when I was 14. But I am more in awe of this verse than I was then. And I've grown an appreciation for Dr. Woolley, as old as he was, that he was still in awe of it as well. Jesus holds everything together. The awesome power of that statement. If you know your Bible, remember the time Jesus talked to the storm and it stopped? Or remember the time he talked to the tree and he cursed the tree and it withered and died? He holds all things together. Christ is over everything in all creation, but there's a problem, isn't there? There's been a great rebellion against his authority. Though everything and everyone exists only by his grace and only for his glory, we decided we didn't want him. We didn't want his authority over us. In fact, if you drill deep enough down, we hated his authority. More on that later. But this rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. And at the point where his creation turned against him in rebellion and sin, if I had been the son of God, I probably would have just wiped everything out and started over again. But in his mercy, he decided he was going to begin a project of renewing and redeeming that creation. This is what the Bible calls the new creation. And Christ is over the new creation. Now, where do we see this in this passage? Look at verse 18. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. Now, the church is the place or the group of people who have voluntarily given up the rebellion, voluntarily laid down arms and said, you know what? We were wrong to live for ourselves and we want to live for you and your purposes and your glory. And so Christ exercises his authority voluntarily on our part over us. This is why if you're not a long-time churchgoer, when you come to church, somebody stands up here with this book and we read this book and we talk about this book because this is how Jesus exercises his authority over the church, over those who have voluntarily submitted to his authority. And that's why it's so important that we make sure that this book is the foundation of everything we say and do as a community, as a church. Because as long as this book is our foundation, we can be confident that we've given up the rebellion and we're living under his authority. As soon as we depart from this book, we're right back into our rebellion and exercising authority that we don't rightfully have. It's why it's crucial that the person who stands at this place or who leads the midweek Bible study or the class upstairs, that they make sure they get the text right. Because perhaps the greatest rebellion is to stand as if to be on the authority of the word, but really just saying whatever you want to say. That's why when you read the Gospels, Jesus has no time for these religious authorities that twist the scriptures. We shouldn't have any time for them either. He is the head of the church. And if he's the head of the church, 
then certainly he must be the head of South Church. Not only is he our authority, he is our glory. He is the glory of the new creation. It says in verse 18, after the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Back in ancient times, the king would be the glory of his people. And because we're sinners and people are idolatrous, that glory of the people turned into idol worship of the king. But there was some meaningful semblance there where the king would ride out into battle. He's not down in the situation room in the bunker. He's out there with a sword and he's slaughtering the enemy, defeating the enemies of the people. And as the king would defeat the enemies of the people, he would be recognized as glorious, a glorious figure, and all the people would rejoice in him. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Now, if you're not aware this morning, our greatest enemies as human beings are not our neighbors, our coworkers, you know, the people that get at us. Our greatest enemies are Satan, sin, and death. And he is the firstborn from among the dead. Now, remember, that firstborn has multiple meanings here. In one sense, he is the firstborn in that he's the firstborn to receive his glorious resurrected body. But even more than that, he is firstborn over death. He has defeated death. And we can glory in that. He is to have supremacy over all things, even death itself, our greatest enemy, the last enemy. And so he is our glory. And he reconciles everything on earth and in heaven. So he created all things, verse 16, look at the text with me here. He created all things in heaven and on earth. And then you see this repetition. He's reconciling all things on earth and in heaven. Now, when you set those statements side by side without understanding how this passage works, it's tempting to think, does this mean that everyone will be saved? Is universalism true? He created all things. He's reconciling all things. Does that mean universalism is true? And the answer is no. Let me explain why. When we think of the word reconcile, we tend to think of two people who have differences, who need to come back together to learn to live together in peace and harmony and all the rest. Dictionary.com, that great bastion of truth, says, reconciliation is to restore friendly relations between And so we think of the peace and harmony, and that's all true. But are we talking about two equals needing to be reconciled here? No. We're talking about the God who made everything and for whom everything exists, patiently enduring the evil of his creation and reconciling them, which means to bring them back to the way it ought to be. So reconciliation, as some scholars have noted, really means pacifying. Now, there's two ways to do this. One is the voluntary voluntary submission we've already talked about in the church. You just willingly lay down arms. But there's another way to be reconciled to the way things ought to be. 
And that is forced disarmament. Look with me at chapter 2. For those who have willingly laid down arms, willingly given up the rebellion, this is what it says. Chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Isn't that amazing? We exist for him, and yet he forgives us. That's amazing. That's one way to end the rebellion, to forgive sins and to restore peace. But look down at verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's forced disarmament. Now, how did he do this? How did he accomplish this reconciliation and restore peace? He did it by the cross. That's why it means so much to us as Christians, because the cross is the means by which our sins can be forgiven. That's a glorious truth. Blood was the requirement for sin. Because we've sinned, it was supposed to be our blood. And instead, he shed his blood on the cross. Let's think about that for a second. Jesus, the one who created everything, who decided what should exist, when he created trees, he knew he was going to die on one. When he created rocks, he knew that would be the instrument of murder against his own people, whom he calls his body. What love is that? To create this world, to have it turn against you, only to enter into it in the lowest form. An excruciating, humiliating death on a cross. And yet that is the true love of God. It's not the love of God that kind of winks at sin and says it's not really that bad. It's not the kind of love that just says everybody's okay, let's just all get along. It's the kind of love that has to go under the wrath of God and endure the wrath of God for sinners so that we could be restored to a peaceful, friendly relation with God himself. That is love. And so when we consider the gospel, the truth about Jesus, we've got to look at it in all of its gore and all of its glory. For those who bow the knee to Jesus, who recognize his authority over our lives, he forgives our sins. But for those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus, who haven't given up the rebellion, one day the hostility is going to cease. It brings us to our last section, Christ over us. Verse 21 says that we were all God's enemies. None of us was exempt from this rebellion. No one does good. All have hated God. We're all guilty. But here's the sad truth. Some of you are sitting here today and you still don't believe it. For all this glorious truth about Jesus, some of you still don't believe a word of it. 
Not really. It hasn't changed you. It hasn't really gripped your heart. It hasn't reordered your priorities. I'm here to plead with you today, give it up. It's not going to end well. Believe this word today and your sins can be forgiven, past, present, and future. Hold on to your rebellion and it's going to cost you everything. Any unbelief, any resistance to the truth about Jesus or resistance to his rightful authority is because deep down you hate God. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, I don't hate God. I just, I think more rationally. I'm just more objective. I wasn't indoctrinated as a young child, so I don't believe all that stuff. Deep down, it's not about that. And I know this about you, first, because the Bible says so, and the Bible is true in all that it says. But I also know it from my own experience. Because deep down, I hated God too. But I decided to lay down arms and to end the rebellion. Because I knew that only what Jesus had done could save me. For me, it started at that little Baptist church in Oak Park, Michigan. I realized that my sin had so separated me from God, there was nothing I could do to work my way out of it. But he died for me to forgive my sins. And the only proper response to a God who would sacrifice his own body and blood is gratitude. Humble, adoring gratitude. And I realized that as I had no other savior but Jesus alone, that I had to change. Because to take him as my savior would mean to follow him as my Lord. There's no other option. But as I've done that and made that commitment, it's made all the difference. All the difference. I feel such pity for people who live hard lives simply because they don't know Jesus. Knowing Jesus changes everything. Because he created us, he knows how we're meant to live. He knows how we function best. And when you submit to him, you begin to flourish as a human being in a way you probably never imagined you could have. There's great freedom and beauty in coming to Jesus. And being reconciled to him, he makes us holy. He reconciled us to God so that we would live the way he wants us to live, which is for his glory and ultimately for our good. When Jesus is in charge, everything is better. It doesn't mean it's a life without suffering, but consider this contrast. The old creation is all about pride and aggression and arrogance. The new creation is all about humility and gentleness and patience. The old creation is all about holding a grudge, getting even. The new creation is about bearing with one another in love and extending the same kind of forgiveness that we've been extended on the cross. When we are reconciled to Jesus in faithful, voluntary submission, life is the way it ought to be. 
Now, it doesn't mean free from suffering. We're still going to endure suffering in this life. But the promise of the gospel is eternal life apart from suffering. But as we are made holy, there are constant threats to our faith in Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul reminds us in verse 23 that we must persevere in the faith. Pastor Don said a few weeks ago, perseverance is the birthmark of a true believer. I think that's right. Our assurance of faith is in Christ alone, not found in ourselves. But the way we know that we've actually committed to Christ is if we're committed to him today. And the way we'll know that we have assurance tomorrow is if we're committed to him tomorrow. That doesn't mean we live sinless lives. But it means we endeavor to live under the authority of his word. And when we don't, when we sin, we confess those things. And we give thanks that he's offered us free forgiveness by his son. But there are many threats to our faith, to our perseverance in the faith. I'm going to mention just one as we begin to draw to a close. There's a phenomenon in our country, really all over the Western world, called deconstruction. If you're not familiar with that term, one author defined it this way. Deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Now, if that's you or someone you know going through that this morning, I want to offer one word of affirmation, but then some caution. The word of affirmation is that it's a good thing to examine our beliefs. It's a good thing to ask questions and to drill down and make sure that the truth we're standing on is solid ground. So by all means, keep asking questions. But here's my caution. As you ask questions of the Bible or Christianity, ask those same questions of yourself. Often when people are deconstructing, they ask the question, is the Bible really true? Is the Bible really trustworthy? Now, if you're going to answer that question, you've got to really do the hard work of understanding what's here because you'll find that it is. But to turn the question on ourselves... We should ask, is my motive for asking trustworthy? Do I really have pure motives? Is my method of reasoning really trustworthy? Am I really sufficient to be the decider of what is true and false or what is right or wrong? Again, the farther we go from the Bible, the more we're just going to look like the culture we live in. And my final caution is don't forsake Jesus. If you're deconstructing from pure motives, it's because you want to really find who Jesus is. Maybe you think that the culture has tainted Christianity as you've known it. Maybe you think it's politics or greed or something that's tainted the Christian faith that you've inherited. Consider the Jesus of the Bible. I've been a pastor a few years now. I've been a Christian a lot longer than that. I have not read this Bible as much as I need to. Go back and read it again. About 500 years ago, there was a group of people who were dissecting the beliefs and practices of the church they grew up in. 
They realized that so much of the religion they had grown up with had been tainted by power and politics and greed. So they set out to examine those things and make the necessary changes. Only they didn't call their project deconstruction. Deconstruction leaves you with a pile of rubble. They called their project reformation. And in seeking to reform themselves and the church, they had a few key guiding principles that aided them in their quest. These are all Latin terms, but the first is called ad fontes, meaning back to the sources. In other words, for all the cultural corruption in the church, for all the uh, other things that have crept in and clouded the truth of Christianity, we got to go back to the sources. What does this say? Do we really understand what it says? Going back to the sources led them to affirming that it was scripture alone that was going to be sufficient for understanding who Jesus is. Sola scriptura. Are we committed to scripture and wrestling with it honestly? Not just claiming we found the truth somewhere else. And then finally, semper reformanda. Always reforming with the implication always reforming according to the word of God. The reason we found people in our time deconstructing often this threat to the faith is because at times the church has failed to keep reforming. We always need to come back to the scriptures. And so maybe you're here and you've never been in church before. I'm glad you're here because this is an important passage. Maybe you've heard this passage a thousand times. Maybe you've taught this passage in another setting. It's good to keep coming back because we constantly are led astray by our own hearts. We're still battling the flesh that is complicit in the rebellion. And so we come here again this Sunday, next Sunday, the Sunday following, and we commit again to laying down arms because of who Jesus is and how we ought to rightly respond to him. When the reformers saw Jesus in scripture. They saw everything their hearts ever desired. They saw the folly of the system they inherited only through the clarity of what Jesus said and did. You could say they were reconciled to God as they rejected the religion of their youth only to find truer faithfulness to God as revealed in the Bible. May we be so faithful today. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess this morning that Jesus is Lord over all creation, over the new creation, over this church. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't given up the rebellion, that today might be the day. Soften their hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here that's wavering in their faith, maybe they're wavering because of some truth claim that they're questioning. Maybe they're wavering because of some temptation to sin. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen them today. Give them a resolve to follow Jesus and him alone. And Lord, for those who want to be faithful this morning, might we renew our commitment to him and follow him as wholeheartedly today as we sought to yesterday. We pray that all this would be for his glory and our greatest good. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.